0: Thank you all very much. Thank you, Eugene, for the very generous introduction. I'm honored to be here. I've never been in this lovely space before, in this building before, but as Eugene explained, I have a longstanding connection to St. Anthony's and to Oxford, which makes this visit especially meaningful for me. As you've heard, Albert Harani was one of my dissertation advisors, and so long ago, I passed through Oxford uh, on my way to or from Egypt, where I was doing my research at the time in order to see him. I actually don't think I've been back since those days, so this is uh, a long-awaited homecoming or, or visit for me. Um, I certainly hope that the uh, intellectual curiosity and the generosity and the, the graciousness that were so characteristic of Albert continue to inspire all those who, who work and study here. So I'll begin by acknowledging that uh, my talk today concerns a very American story of limited or no relevance to the United Kingdom, to Europe, or anywhere else. So this is the moment you can get up and leave if you don't want to hear about anything relating to the United States. Otherwise, I will hope you'll bear with me. So the main question that I'd like to discuss is how it was that American universities came to have programs, centers, departments focused on specific geographical regions like the Middle East or South Asia or Latin America, rather than As with the disciplines, focused on a specific theoretical object. For example, something called society for the sociologists, politics for the political scientists, uh, culture for earlier generations of anthropologists, many of them have moved on to other things, and so on. That is, where did Middle East studies and the other New Area Studies fields that emerged in the United States after the Second World War were embodied in new institutions and have since that time become apparently durable features of the U.S. academic scene actually come from what made their emergence possible and what shaped their trajectories. So these are some of the issues I explore in my recent book titled Field Notes, The Making of Middle East Studies in the United States, published last year by Stanford University Press. The history of area studies in general and of Middle East studies in the United States in particular that I discuss in that book is, like all human endeavors, replete with unrealized aspirations and persistent anxieties and with unanticipated and unintended consequences. Now, unlike the earlier book that Eugene mentioned, Contending Visions of the Middle East, which also discussed more briefly the origins of area studies, Field Notes is based almost entirely on research in the archives of entities like the Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Ford Foundations, the Social Science Research Council, the American Council of Learned Societies, and I'll talk about both of those shortly, and various other organizations. It's these organizations, I argue, that gave birth to and sustained area studies in the United States, rooted in an evolving vision of how to produce and disseminate knowledge about the world whose origins can be traced back to the interwar period, to the pre-Second World War period. And that vision was eventually embodied in a new set of institutions and networks and practices within American higher education. Now, within that broader context, Field Notes focuses on the history of U.S. Middle East studies in particular, and on how this field was actually launched and built. I was especially interested in trying to reconstruct the elaboration of what I term this field's infrastructure, the establishment of new academic institutions and programs, the provision of funding for new modes of research and training, the development of language training methods, materials, and programs, of library and bibliographical resources, and the launching of new academic organizations and networks, scholarly journals, and models of graduate education. In contrast, I do not devote a lot of attention to what scholars actually produced in terms of books or articles or conference papers or to the theoretical paradigms or methodological presuppositions, implicit or explicit, that inform their work. Or to house scholarly expertise on the Middle East related to policymaking. I made this choice, which may seem some somehow rather odd, for several reasons. For one, I already wrote at some length about the field's intellectual history and contending visions and didn't feel the need to say much more about it. But more simply, my priorities in this project lay elsewhere. I wanted to elucidate the, the broader visions and the rationales which underpin the development of various studies as a purportedly new and better mode of understanding the world outside the United States and of pursuing research, graduate training and undergraduate education. But I also wanted to try to understand the specific visions and mechanics and logistics of field building in the U.S. in U.S. Middle East studies, how one actually cr- creates, launches a new academic field, how it was manifested in institutions and funding streams, and, not least, the dilemmas and anxieties that that accompanied these developments. More broadly, this book was inspired by and, I hope, will contribute to the growing body of scholarly work that's been done in recent years, for the United States at least, on the funding decisions, the academic institutions and networks, and the visions that, in important ways, shape the development of the social sciences and humanities in the 20th century United States. Now, I'd like to lay out a few of the broader arguments that I try to make in this book. I'll begin with the question of the origin of area studies. In most accounts, including my own in Contending Visions, it's the Second World War which is usually described as the the midwife of area studies. There is, for example, the often quoted passage from a 1963 speech by McGeorge Bundy, Harvard Wunderkind, National Security Advisor to Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, and a key architect of US military intervention in Vietnam. In an address at the School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, Bundy declared, and I quote, It is a curious fact of academic history that the first great center of area studies in the United States was not located in any university, but in Washington during the Second World War in the Office of Strategic Services. In very large measure, the area studies programs developed in American universities in the years after the war were manned, directed or stimulated by graduates of the OSS, a remarkable institution, half cops and robbers, and half faculty meeting. Now the OSS, for those of you who don't know, was the first civilian intelligence agency in the United States. It was formally established by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1942, and recruited heavily among faculty and graduate students knowledgeable about parts of the world in which the United States was or would soon be deeply engaged. Bundy was not wrong to highlight the importance of the OSS in helping to spawn area studies as a distinctive component of the post-war academic scene in the United States. And I think he was also correct to point out that into the 1960s, many of the leading figures in most of the area studies fields, including Middle East studies, had served in the OSS. But I argue that the vision of organizing the production and dissemination of knowledge along geographic, regional, rather than disciplinary lines actually had important pre-war roots as well. Key elements at the heart of the vision that at the heart of area studies had antecedents dating back to the 1920s. And they have to do not with the Second World War or with the Cold War and the rise of American global empire and the national security state built to manage it, but with developments in the social sciences and the humanities in the interwar period. This is a key point because I I want to challenge those who, in what I see as a rather reductionist fashion, treat area studies as essentially a byproduct of the Cold War and the national security state, and thereby ignore longer-term developments, which I think helped shape this new field. In other words, to understand where area studies came from, we need to broaden both our time frame and our frame of reference. For one, it was, in fact, not the federal government that played the central role in imagining and launching area studies in the United States, but rather the great foundations, established on the basis of the vast wealth accumulated in a small number of hands during the period of rapid industrialization in the United States between roughly the Civil War and the First World War. These foundations, particularly the Carnegie Corporation of New York, established in 1911, and the Rockefeller Foundation, established in 1913, powerfully shaped the humanities and social sciences in the United States from the First World War onward. The funding decisions that they made in the interwar period laid the basis for many of the developments in the social sciences in the United States that we often tend to associate with the Cold War period, including behavioralism, modernization theory, and an emphasis on interdisciplinarity. So as scholars like David Engerman and Mark Solovey and others have argued, we need to be cautious about too easily attributing post-war developments in the social sciences to the Cold War. Now, the complex trajectory of the social sciences in the United States during the Cold War was obviously inflected by the contingencies and exigencies of that period, but they also had important roots in developments of the pre-war period when the Cold War was not even imaginable and was shaped by other factors as well. Even after the Second World War, it was not government funding but funding primarily from the carnegie and rockefeller foundation joined in the 1950s by the even wealthier ford foundation which made area studies an integral and durable component of the american academic scene manifested in new area studies centers positions fellowships graduate training programs and much else now let me elaborate a little bit on on these points in the interwar period between the first and second world wars and after Carnegie and Rockefeller channeled funding into the humanities and the social sciences through two intermediary organizations established not long after the First World War. One of these was the American Council of Learned Societies, which still exists, founded in 1919 to bring together and further the interests of disciplinary organizations like the American Historical Association, the Modern Language Association, the American Oriental Society, and others. These disciplinary organizations were themselves the product of the reorganization along disciplinary lines of teaching, research, and professional life in American higher education in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a process which also yielded distinct disciplinary departments at colleges and universities. Now, the ACLS was funded largely by the Rockefeller Foundation, and it was run by people who, broadly speaking, shared the ethos of what scholars refer to as the progressive movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the United States, progressive with a capital P. These people defined the mission of the ACLS as advancing and modernizing the humanities in the United States, but they also felt that the humanities could and should play a role in improving society by more effectively educating and addressing contemporary social problems and educating the American public about the wider world. Among other things, this meant using the resources at their disposal to push the humanities to devote more attention to the modern and contemporary non-Western world, including improved language training. As a result, from the late 1920s and through the 1930s, ACLS leaders began channeling foundation funding, mainly from the Rockefeller Foundation, into efforts to promote and modernize research and training on the non-Western world, beginning with Chinese studies, but eventually including a range of regionally focused fields, including what was then called Near Eastern Studies. This involved, for example, organizing summer institutes that brought together scholars and students for intensive training on a specific country or region, including, generally speaking, accelerated language training and intensive courses on history and culture. It also involved new postdoctoral research fellowship programs and support for the development of more effective language training methods and materials so that what were, at the time, generally called oriental languages would be taught as living rather than dead languages when possible by native speakers, which had not at all been the case in American higher education. These efforts would lay the basis for the intensive language training programs established for the US military during the Second World War, and for the approach to language training that would take shape after the war in the new area studies fields. This period also saw the first efforts to create interdisciplinary graduate programs focused on a particular region. For example, the University of Michigan's program in Oriental Civilizations established in the late 1920s. Now, I use the term interdisciplinary advisedly here because it was also in the same period that key foundation and academic leaders came to regard the transcendence of disciplinary boundaries as an important goal and began funding efforts to achieve it. This development, too, would feed into the vision of area studies developed during and after the Second World War. So these three elements, a focus on geographic regions rather than disciplines, a heightened interest in the non-Western world, especially for the so-called post-classical period, for the relatively modern and even contemporary periods, and a desire to foster interdisciplinarity intersected in the interwar period and underpinned the establishment of a number of new institutions, which I argue can be seen as forerunners of or even prototypes for post-war area studies. There is, for example, the Institute of Pacific Relations, founded in 1925 and supported largely by Rockefeller funding, which played an important role in promoting the study of modern and contemporary Asia. From the late 1940s, the Institute would be a key target of the Red Scare, with many on the right accusing the scholars associated with it of being communists or communist sympathizers and blaming them for losing China. Now, this may be surprising, but another institution that one might see as a forerunner of area studies is the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, founded again with Rockefeller money in 1919. As Bruce Cooklick has shown, the Oriental Institute's founder, the famous Egyptologist James Henry Breasted, envisioned it as, quote, a means by which American Oriental studies would be transformed from what they had been, a primarily linguistic endeavor, identified almost exclusively with ancient civilizations, into a historical discipline, and here is Breasted's own language, in which art, archeology, span political science, language, literature, and sociology, in short, all of the categories of civilization shall be represented and correlated. Two decades later, this kind of language, and more broadly, a vision of moving beyond 19th century philology to form something new and interdisciplinary, would provide a key rationale for area studies. So to sum up this dimension of my argument, area studies did not emerge ex nihilo during or after the Second World War. It had some complex antecedents. By 1941, the ACLS had already devoted a great deal of energy to what it saw as modernizing the humanities, and it channeled substantial foundation funding into that effort, often through grants and projects that had the effect of enhancing the development of academic fields focused on, specific, on particular geographic regions, especially outside the West, as it was then understood. As a result, fields that could be thought of as Far Eastern and Latin American studies and in a much more rudimentary way even Near Eastern studies began to grow in size and develop a certain coherence and institutional density even before the Second World War. Now, they didn't define themselves as they would come to, and they didn't function as they would come to after the war, but they were characterized by a growing number of students and trained scholars and by increasingly ramified networks possessing experience in collaborative endeavors, including conferences, publications, and intensive language training programs and heightened attention to the modern period and to contemporary issues. So at least some of the intellectual and institutional infrastructure For what would become area studies and models of what that new mode of knowledge production and dissemination might look like were taking shape well before the united states entered the second world war i'll turn now very briefly to the war years i've already quoted mcgeorge bundy's claim that the oss was the the birthplace of u.s area studies what i've said so far suggests that the claim ignores some significant earlier history but i'd also argue that there's perhaps been too much attention on the OSS. Wartime ex- exigencies also brought it to being other sites and practices and networks through which the vision of area studies was forged. I'll mention only one here. This is the Army Specialized Training Program, which during the Second World War developed new kinds of language and area curricula and methods to quickly train military personnel in an array of languages and on which post-war area studies would draw. This federally funded program was based at colleges and universities across the United States, and it gave university administrators a taste of what lavish outside funding could yield that they were very anxious to have more of after the war. So the practices and visions developed at these and other wartime sites and initiatives were rather quickly translated into a new and apparently coherent and efficacious conception of how more useful knowledge about the world might be produced and disseminated, but also eventually into an assemblage of new academic programs and institutions and funding flows. It's in fact striking to me how early in the war this began to happen. Within a year or so of Pearl Harbor, foundation officers and leaders of various academic organizations were already beginning to argue that the regionally-based approach to the production and dissemination of knowledge was the wave of the future. In this process, a central role was played by the Social Science Research Council. The SSRC had been founded in 1944 to do for the social sciences more or less what the ACLS was seeking to do for the humanities, to protect and extend the interests of the social science disciplines and promote social science research, especially on contemporary social problems. Like the ACLS, the SSRC was funded mainly by the Rockefeller Foundation, although it also had strong ties to the Carnegie Corporation. Both SSRC and ACLS leaders were in very close and constant contact with foundation officers. Those officers held the purse strings. They had the money to dispense, but they depended on SSRC and ACLS leaders who were themselves academics and had strong ties to the universities to come up with fundable projects and to implement them. Underpinning and facilitating this close working relationship was the fact that both sets of men, they were pretty much all men, for the most part came from the same social background and shared the same outlook on the world and their mission in it. That outlook might be characterized as progressive, again, in that American capital P sense, internationalist in a Wilsonian sense, and propelled by a certain American sort of elite technocratic noblesse oblige. Early in the Second World War, with foundation support and guidance, the SSRC began pushing the idea that what now began to be called regional or area or aerial studies offered a new and highly promising approach to research, graduate training, and undergraduate education. They argued that the reorientation of knowledge production and dissemination along regional lines would benefit the social sciences, both by producing findings with a stronger claim to universality and by fostering something like what would later come to be called interdisciplinarity. As a member of the SSRC staff put it in 1944, we have long been aware that the social disciplines have been provincial in their failure to check their experiences against those cultures not under Western civilization. This kind of checking is very much needed. And he went on to add that, quote, a regional focus may be one way of integrating the social sciences, effectively encouraging the interdisciplinary work long discussed. So here we can see the concept of area studies taking shape well before anyone could have foreseen that the post-war era would be characterized by a decades-long struggle between camps led by the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, there was certainly an instrumental side to this vision. It was understood that after the war, the United States would be a global power. It would therefore need, as a June 1943 assessment of the promise and prospects of area studies put it, Quote, "...thousands of Americans who combine thorough professional or technical training with, with knowledge of the languages, economics, politics, history, geography, peoples, customs, and religions of foreign countries." These foundation officials and academic leaders and the Roosevelt administration anticipated a post-war era that would with- witness the dismantling of the old colonial empires, opening up dramatic new opportunities for U.S. trade, investment, and influence." And this expectation, too, helped fuel the desire to train scholars, students, and others equipped to engage with the non-Western world in particular in what many hoped would be an era of decolonization. It's certainly true that once area studies was up and running from the late 1940s, thanks to the very large sums that Carnegie and Rockefeller, and a little bit later the Ford Foundation, gave to universities across the country, and the Cold War was underway, there were certainly scholars in area studies who sought to produce what would come to be called, or what we might call today, policy-relevant knowledge. And we know that some of the area studies centers, notably those for Russian and East Asian studies, thrived on contracts from the military and intelligence agencies. But it seems to me that the research pursued by the great majority of scholars in the new post-war area studies fields was not particularly shaped by the needs of the state. And eventually, scholars and students in many of these same fields would develop quite radical critiques of American global power and of what they saw as the complicity of some of those in them with the national security state. To make this point is not to diminish the reality of university and foundation complicity with the national security state during the Cold War and after, uh, or to relieve anyone of political responsibility or moral responsibility for their actions. It's simply to insist that we be careful about reducing area studies to an epiphenomenon of the Cold War or depicting it as simply a Cold War form of knowledge, as some have done. Now, again, I emphasize in this regard that it was not the US government which actually translated this emerging vision of area studies into reality. The federal government in the United States began pumping money into area studies only after the passage of the National Defense Education Act in 1958, which funded existing and new centers for area studies across the country, language fellowships, and various other things. That funding certainly had an impact but area studies as an academic field embodied in institutions, new centers, programs, faculty to staff them, graduate programs, funding streams, journals, and so on actually came into existence in the later 1940s and 1950s, well before the government appeared on the scene, thanks again to large scale funding from the Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Ford foundations. The Ford Foundation alone spent something like a quarter of a billion dollars on area and international studies very broadly defined between 1953 and 1968. And it was foundation officials at Carnegie and Rockefeller in collaboration with the SSRC and lesser extent ACLS leaders who formulated the vision underpinning area studies and allocated the funding that launched the full range of regional fields. So for example, it was someone by the name of John Gardner who was then a member of the Carnegie Corporation staff and later its president and even later President Lyndon Johnson, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, and a key architect of the Medicare and Medicaid programs, who in the spring of 1947 visited universities around the country to determine which ones should receive foundation funding for area study centers in which fields. As a result, by 1958, when the federal government got involved, a ramified network of area study centers and programs that had already been established, along with the National Research Fellowship Program and other key components of this this new academic field. Now, in the process, as they were setting up this, this new field, foundation officers and academic leaders grappled with the question of what area studies should be. Early on, there were a range of rather different visions contending for primacy and for funding. For example, the ACLS saw area studies primarily as a way to enhance language training and give undergraduates a better understanding of the world, especially the non-Western world. As I've said, they've been engaged in this kind of effort since the late 1920s. In contrast, the SSRC, with support mainly from Carnegie, saw social science research and graduate training as the top priorities. Now, as I noted, the SSRC regarded area studies as complementary to the disciplines, as a way to compel them to engage with the wider world, overcome the boundaries between them, and question their claims to universality, which were implicitly based on treating certain Western paths of development as the universal norm. By the early 1950s, the SSRC's vision had emerged as the dominant one. And with backing from the foundations, especially Ford, which became the main funder in the field, it was the SSRC which oversaw the development of area studies from that point on. However, defining precisely what area studies should be and what it should seek to do was a fraught question. And it generated a great deal of anxiety Anxiety which would plague Middle East studies and other area studies fields for decades. Key figures in the nascent area studies fields, especially scholars and academic entrepreneurs associated with the SSRC, believed that like each of the disciplines, area studies needed a, a theory and a method of its own, something that would give it intellectual coherence and inform the research agenda of the emerging regionally focused academic fields and they struggled mightily to figure out what this might be. Early on, their search for a method led them to look to several contemporary research projects that they hoped could serve as possible models for the new field and yield a conceptual and methodological paradigm for area studies. For example, at the first national conference to bring together leading figures from all of the area studies fields, held at Columbia University in November 1947, there was much excited discussion about the Puerto Rico social anthropology project. This was an in-depth study of the island's population, especially its rural majority, which had just gotten underway. It was presided over by Julian Stewart, whom the anthropologist here might know of. He was one of the period's preeminent anthropologists and is usually remembered today for formulating the concept of cultural ecology. But actual field work in Puerto Rico was carried out mainly by several of Stewart's graduate students at Columbia uh, some of whom, like Sidney Mintz and Eric Wolfe, would go on to important academic careers rooted in intellectual perspectives very different from stewards. Now, at the time, the Puerto Rico project was regarded by many as very much on the cutting edge. Most anthropological studies have tended to focus on small communities, on villages, tribal groups, and the like, and often treated them as self-sustaining, self-contained, isolated units. By contrast, the Puerto Rico project tried to look at Puerto Rico Puerto Rican rural society as a whole, with the aim of gauging the impact of industrialization on rural communities through oral history, labor studies, and comparative surveys of sociocultural patterns. The kinds of theoretical and methodological problems with which Julian Stewart was grappling in Puerto Rico seemed to the founders of area studies associated with the SSRC the very problems that area studies writ large needed to face. Hence their hope that Steward's work in Puerto Rico, which involved in-depth research on a defined geographic space, might blaze a trail for this new field in formation. It gradually became clear, however, that neither this project nor other similar projects really offered suitable models for regionally focused research. And by the early 1950s, most of the social scientists who had played leading roles in elaborating and launching area studies had in practice largely given up on coming up with a theory and method for the new field, a a sort of generalizable model that practitioners could deploy. Moreover, many scholars and students in the new area studies fields, in fact, already operated as if area studies was whatever they happened to be doing. They did not seem to feel any urgent need for a coherent paradigm for area studies as such, a clear definition of its object and its methodology. Nonetheless, the question of the proper relationship between area studies and the disciplines would continue to vex leaders in the field for decades to come, and the quest for some kind of coherent paradigm for area studies that could guide its research agenda did not really come to an end. Rather, it devolved from being framed as an issue for area studies as a whole to being framed as a problem for each regional field. So both of these issues would confront and even haunt the committees that the SSRC began to establish from the late 1940s to promote and lead the development of each of the area studies fields. Now, in the course of my research for this book, I devoted a lot of time and energy to reconstructing the deliberations and activities of one of those regional committees, the SSRC's Committee for the Near and Middle East, established in 1951, and from 1959, jointly sponsored with the ACLS. I think we can learn a lot about how U.S. Middle East Studies was actually built from a close-up look at what this committee tried to do over its 45-year lifespan, how it tried to do it, and what its shifting roster of members, most of the leading scholars in the field, thought they were doing, and why. Now, I realize that reconstructing the work of an academic committee probably sounds like the most boring, uh, if not coma-inducing task that one can imagine, and I'll confess that I sometimes had trouble staying awake while poring over the minutes of this committee's meeting, year after year, decade after decade, but... Many of us know here how academic life works, we've had to sit through seemingly endless committee meetings, usually deadly tedious, but sometimes actually productive. This is often where important decisions get made or not made, with real consequences. This is where we can see how the the sausage of field building actually gets made, so to speak. But in truth, it was also my own personal experience that led me to devote so much effort to reconstructing what this committee was up to in its various incarnations. So from 1991 to 1995, relatively early in my own academic career, I served on this same committee, which was formally titled the SSRC-ACLS Joint Committee on the Near and Middle East. Just remembering the title was an accomplishment. We didn't know it at the time, but this was almost the very end of the committee's lifespan. In 1996, in the name of globalization, the SSRC disbanded all its regional committees. We can talk more about that later if anyone's interested. So what did we actually do? As far as I can recall, the main thing we did, and certainly the most enjoyable, was to award dissertation research fellowships, funded by the Ford Foundation, of course, to promising graduate students, which certainly helped advance the field. We also had many really excellent meals in interesting places. For some reason, the SSRC deemed it imperative that the committee convene for a weekend in Robot or Lyon or Briocada, as far as I could tell, mainly to eat. So this is the only period of my life when I felt like a jet setter. But I also have vivid memories of witnessing from my perch at the bottom of the committee's social hierarchy the anxiety that beset the senior scholars who led the committee when it came to fulfilling what they took to be the committee's other main mission, framing a research agenda that could move U.S. Middle East studies forward. They had great difficulty doing what they felt they'd been mandated to do, coming up with and implementing that cutting-edge research program for the field. And this led to a great deal of anxiety and to a sense of failure and self-doubt. Now, in the course of my archival research for this book, I was surprised to find that the same anxiety plagued the committee virtually from its inception in 1951. I'll come back to that in a moment. So what task was this committee supposed to accomplish? They could be grouped into three domains. First, as I said, the committee awarded a number of research fellowships each year, funded by Ford, postdoctoral fellowships initially, and then later, doctoral dissertation research fellowships. Not all of the research these fellowships help make possible may have been of lasting value, but given how meager and thin scholarship on the Middle East was in the United States in the early 1950s, this kind of support certainly had a, uh, an important cumulative impact. Second, the committee was supposed to help develop what I've called the infrastructure of Middle East studies in the United States. And this set of tasks took up much of its time and energy. Until the mid-1960s, there was no national association for scholars and students in this field, so the committee had to take on critical field-building tasks that no single Middle East study center or program could undertake on its own. So, for example, the committee played a key role in launching the inter-university consortium that began to offer intensive training in Arabic, Persian, and Turkish each summer. It supported the development of new teaching methods and materials for Middle East languages. It subsidized the translation into English, of Hans Wehr's Dictionary of Modern Arabic. Anybody use it here, studying Arabic? There you go. That's why it's in English, uh, not German. It had been published in German in 1952. It helped finalize the Library of Congress Transliteration System for Arabic, p- helped publish uh, bibliographies of Middle East work, etc. It helped launch the Center for Arabic Studies Abroad, based in Cairo. Last but not least, in 1966, it was this committee which played a central role in launching Middle East Studies Association. And it's no coincidence that Princeton sociologist Maura Berger, who is chair of this committee, would become the first president of MESA. In other words, this committee played a critical role in getting U.S. Middle East Studies as an academic field, a nationwide academic field, up and running. Finally, in addition to handing out fellowships, developing the field's infrastructure, the committee was charged with formulating and implementing a research agenda for the field, which meant determining priorities for research informed by some coherent vision of the field and its needs, some concept of what it was and where it should go. I would argue the committee was much more successful at the first two of those missions than at the third. In fact, this was a mission which the committee from its inception in 1951 to its disbanding in 1996 struggled to fulfill and its lack of success generated a great deal of anxiety, a widespread sense of inferiority, even among leading scholars in the field a sense that Middle East studies was intellectually backward, not up to speed with the other area studies field and the disciplines. Let me illustrate this with some quotes from the archives. I could offer many more. Here, for example, is the chair of the SSRC Committee on the Near and Middle East addressing his fellow committee members in September 1953, just two years after the committee was established. Have we any more reason for existence? Have we as a group shot our bolt contributed all we can to the development of Near Eastern research in America, and are content and remain content to carry on through our own individual work, teaching, and contacts. If so, let's disband, or have the SSRC disband us. If not, where do we go now? Frankly, I have a guilt complex. I am unhappy with how little we have accomplished. Here he is again one year later. Frankly, I see no reason for our existence unless we as a group endeavor, somehow and immediately, to inventory that basic research which must be done and somehow run the risk of determining priorities. I jump ahead to May 1962 and another quote from the Minutes. One member summed up his impression of the discussion, saying that while the Joint Committee had accomplished a good deal in the past in the services it had performed and projects it had undertaken, it appeared to him that the Joint Committee had no very clear idea of what it might do in the future, other than administer the grants program. In 1970, a committee member tells his colleagues, it is time the committee stopped berating itself for its failures. While it may be the case that the Middle East field as a whole has shown less intellectual vitality than true for other area fields, I believe there are a variety of objective reasons to explain these shortcomings. We are in that converse dilemma where self-censure and self-pity paralyzes resolve, devalues all undertakings as insufficient or irrelevant, and contributes to a self-perpetuating fantasy of incompetence. There is certainly just cause for concern with our field. Let us finally move from concern to productive action. A decade later, the committee's chair states, in summary, the role of the joint committee in vitalizing the field was not clear. And finally, in his handwriting notes on yet another of a long series of unproductive workshops the committee had sponsored over the years on the state of the field, the committee's SSRC staffer adds his own comment, quote, dilemma, ineffectiveness of 20 years of work from an area studies approach in producing quality research. So what was going on here? For decades, many committee members, especially the political scientists among them, found themselves stuck. They had been appointed to this committee in large part to fulfill the SSRC's mandate that they formulate and implement a research agenda for Middle East studies, that they determine where the cutting edge of the field was and push it forward. Over their shoulders loomed the disciplines, each of which seemed to be neatly organized around the investigation of a coherent object, the political system for the political scientists, society for the sociologists, culture for the anthropologists, and so on. Moreover, they were convinced that their disciplinary colleagues were making wondrous progress, in sharp contrast to their own failures. For example, in the 1950s and 1960s, under the auspices of the SSRC, one set of American political scientists was busy elaborating modernization theory, while another set was busy trying to turn their discipline into what they envisioned as a proper behavioral science. None of this would lead anywhere in the long run, but at the time, this looked like the cutting edge in the social sciences in the United States. These projects drove some committee members who were not social scientists to despair. The Harvard Islamicist Mohsin Mahdi put it nicely in a 1972 note to his colleagues. Quote, The lower parts of Max Weber can be taken apart and put together in many novel ways. A worthy task to which social science calls us to consecrate our energy and treasure over and over again. Incidentally, I thought of titling my book The Lower Parts of Max Weber, but decided not to for fear that it would be mistaken for porn. Desi- despite such pleas, into the 1980s, leading social scientists who studied the Middle East held fast to the belief that somewhere out there, just over the horizon, a useful interdisciplinary paradigm for their field could be found that would ground the research agenda they were supposed to develop. Yet somehow that paradigm always remained elusive, despite endless workshops and conferences on the state of the field, which they hoped would produce the breakthrough to something like the theory and method of area studies that the founders of the field had envisioned three decades earlier. Of course, this never happened. This committee, in fact, never really fulfilled its mission of developing a coherent, much less interdisciplinary research agenda for Middle East studies, rooted in some clearly defined theoretical paradigm. Moreover, by the 1980s, this quest increasingly came to seem not only unattainable, but fundamentally misguided. I cannot go into detail here, so I'll say only that in what we might call the long 1980s, Middle East studies, like many other academic fields in the United States, was profoundly altered by the transformation sweeping the humanities and to an extent, the social sciences as well. The impact of feminist theory and of women's and then gender studies The encounter with post-structuralism, the linguistic or cultural turn, the rise of fields new to American academia, such as post-colonial studies and cultural studies, changing demographics within the field. All of these and other developments powerfully affected the intellectual landscape of the area studies fields. But they also affected many of the disciplines, as people questioned the validity and coherence of what each discipline traditionally specified as its object and of the boundaries between them. Now, if the coherence of the disciplines was put into question, what plausible basis basis was there for insisting that an area studies field have a coherent object and a corresponding methodology? These questions (coughs) magnified the impact of the powerful critiques of both Orientalism and modernization theory that had been underway since the late 1960s. From the early 1970s, younger scholars and students, based mostly in the UK, had begun to elaborate a critique of Orientalism from a broadly Marxian perspective. That critique would be amplified if also taken in a very different direction after the publication in 1978 of Edward Said's book, Orientalism. Meanwhile, by the mid 1970s, it had become very clear that the modernization theory project was an abject failure and that behavioralism had not delivered on the promises made for it, either. The upshot of these developments was a questioning, and in some cases reconfiguration, of what had long been seen as the troubled relationship among the disciplines, as well as between the disciplines and area studies, along with the sprouting of new versions of interdisciplinarity. One consequence of this was the fading away of the expectation that Middle East studies and the other area studies fields, or area studies in general, could, should, or would produce a theory and method that would specify its parameters and shape its practice. So this vision dissipated, and in its place came growing recognition, de facto at least, that what gives Middle East studies such coherence as it possesses is essentially the fact that those engaged in it, while doing a great many different things in intellectual terms, all relate to more or less the same region of the world and are engaged with a common set of institutions and networks. These include regionally focused department centers or programs at various universities, and on the national level, the Middle East Studies Association, certain academic journals and fellowship programs, language programs, and so on. In other words, there has been recognition that beyond its common geographic focus, the field has an essentially institutional and perhaps social rather than an intellectual basis. Nationally as well as locally, it's about institutional turf and networks and funding streams rather than about any intellectual paradigm distinctive to a specific area studies field or to all of them. The eminent China scholar scholar John K. Fairbank put it nicely, I think, in his memoirs, where he offered this perspective on area studies from the 1940s into the 1980s. For a time, there was a mystique attached to area studies, an assumption that a combining of disciplines would somehow produce a super-discipline, a new intellectual grasp. In the end, one had to agree, area studies was not a new discipline of organized principles. It was only an activity, something one did. This recognition, whether implicit or explicit, helped set the stage for what I see as the intellectual flourishing of US Middle East studies over the last several decades. And it has also enabled the field to at long last free itself from the chronic sense of intellectual backwardness, exceptionalism, inferiority, and isolation that had once been so widespread among its senior figures. Over the last several decades, students and scholars in area studies have produced a great deal of excellent work that is both disciplinarily grounded, but also happily interdisciplinary, and deeply engaged with intellectual, current and car- intellectual currents and debates across a range of fields. My own narrative and field notes stops in the 1980s, but I hope to have contributed to a fuller understanding of how this came about, including the visions that initially shaped area studies and Middle East studies and where they came from, that idea of area studies as off- offering a new intellectual grasp as Fairbank put it, but I've also sought to explore what that something one did actually meant in practice, which turned out to be quite different than those early visions. This academic enterprise did not develop along the lines those who envisioned and shaped it early on imagined they would. And yet, from U.S. Middle East studies, at least, I think, one can make a reasonable case that the net result has been the construction of an apparently durable academic field, that is of substantial value to the world of scholarship, to higher education, and to society. It has, perhaps most importantly, created and preserved institutional space for teaching and research on this region at universities across the United States. At the same time, as you no doubt know, U.S. Middle East studies has often been an embattled, at times even besieged, field, with scholars, teachers, centers, and universities subjected to harassment and pressure by well-funded organizations based outside the academic world seeking to further their political agendas. Sadly, it is distinctive among the area studies fields in this respect, at least since the late 1940s or early 1950s when China scholars were under assault for their expertise. The struggle to defend the intellectual and educational domain that Middle East studies has painfully carved out for itself and to preserve its autonomy from the state is likely to be long and difficult, but I hope we can agree that this is a scholarly and pedagogical enterprise worth preserving and a piece of history worth understanding. Thank you.